I'll be reading <coughs> this morning is Nehemiah chapter 9. And it's headed, The Israelites Confess Their Sins. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day and sent another quarter, spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shibani, Bunai, Shibai, Bani, and Kenani, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Bashabani, Sherabai, Hodei, Shibani, and Pethani said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your gracious name, and may it, and may it be exalted above all blessings and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything, and the multitudes of the heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of your of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Jebusites and the Gergashites. You kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of your forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. 
You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sion, king of Hezbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued the, before them the Canaanites who lived in the land, and you handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Wells were dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in their great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who possessed them. But when they were oppressed, oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. 
For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you had admonished them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to their neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, O God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while there were, they were in the kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave to them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings who, have who were placed over us. They ruled over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Tony and, and to Peter to reading that for us. I want to echo Tony's encouragement. If you can prayerfully consider what you can give to a thank offering at the moment, then that will be a great blessing. I've had the real privilege of supporting the family that we are talking about since they arrived um, in Plymouth in January, and they are a stunning family with an incredible story. So it'd be great to help them to be reunited as a family, and equally this year with Gift of Hope as we go into another lockdown as there are a lot of families that are struggling to feed their children. The numbers of referrals that we've already had from schools is looking higher than last year, and we've only gone to 15 schools rather than our normal, uh, normal 40. So we will need, um, well, that project is so needed this year. Peter, thank you for reading that to us. I've read a few of our Nehemiah chapters out so far, and they're always a challenge, but well read. Thank you. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive straight in as I help and unpack uh, Nehemiah chapter 9 for us this morning. But let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it shapes, teaches, and guides our life. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. We thank you that your spirit is alive and active. Lord, we say we are open to you, to your leading, to your guiding. Have your way, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've entitled this morning, Confession with Dwelling on God. And we're three quarters of the way through of our sermon series, Nehemiah, A Time to Build. 
And it's been a really beneficial series for us as we've studied chapter by chapter the book of Nehemiah. And we've considered, and it's been a word in season, about how our God is in the business of rebuilding. And we're in an interesting place in our series, an interesting place in our book, as Tom so helpfully unpacked for us last week. The wall is rebuilt, but the story's not over. Which might seem strange to us on the surface, because we're, we're used to books ending with the hero reaching their goal. But the mission of God doesn't work like this. You don't kind of finish and complete a work for God because God's work is never done, not as long as we're still here on earth. And last week, as we thought about Nehemiah chapter 8 together, we saw how Nehemiah and Ezra sought to bring spiritual revival and renewal to the people. God is not just interested in completing a task. He's not just a boss in heaven who gives us something to do and then we report back to him. He's not just a God of practical orders, but incredibly and astonishingly, we serve a God who is personally interested in us. He's interested in our spiritual well-being, where we're at with him, and he gently encourages us to keep going. And that's what we see, that's what we saw last week as Nehemiah's, um, in Nehemiah chapter 8, as the people gathered and re-centered their lives on God's word. And then there was a great celebration as the people began to rejoice again in their understanding of God. And today, rather, we kind of see a somber response of the people that leads them to a place and a posture of confession. And then they prayerfully and praise God with this beautiful prayer that Peter has read to us. And without oversimplifying the structure that we see, in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see them hear the word of God. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we kind of come to this place of confession, and then next week we will see together how they began to renew their pledge of keeping God's law. But I want us to start by noting and hearing that the word of God, uh, when it was shared with the Israelites, brought them to a place of openness and confession. Point number one this morning is the practice of confession. I wonder what comes to mind for you when you, or what image you conjure up in your mind that you automatically go to when you hear the word repentance or when you hear the word confession. Both words and practices can carry a lot of baggage for us or they can create in us a reaction which shows the kind of where our heart is or maybe a bias that we have towards them. And this morning, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us and potentially unwind our understanding of both the practice of confession and repentance. Often we go to imagining a person on the street corner with a megaphone shouting, repent, because the end is near. Sometimes we associate repentance with the idea of swift judgment and a harsh punishment that is to follow. Sometimes an invitation to repent can sound like a threat. It's now or never. Get it right now or feel the wrath of God later. And this thinking can create in us an unhealthy view of God, where we think that God is going to unleash punishment upon us unless we show God how truly sorry and remorseful we are. 
Whereas also, if we're not careful, we can kind of swing to the other extreme, the other pendulum swing. We can find ourselves, when we hear the word confession, thinking that this is a solely Catholic practice that has no relevance to us because of what Jesus has done. And often, this is an aspect of Christian living that we don't give enough attention to. Yet we see in our passage today the scriptural necessity of coming back to a heart of confession before God. The freedom and the powerful breakthrough that this brings to the Israelites. Martin Luther once said that repentance is the way to make progress in the Christian life. He talked about adopting an all-of-life repentance. And that being the best sign that we have to grow deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. So I hope you don't mind this morning. We're going to focus our attention on this practice and how we can adopt it into our lives. But let's focus again on Nehemiah chapter 9 that Peter read so well to us. We've read already how the Israelites stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of their Lord their God for a quarter of a day. And then they spent another quarter of the day in confession and then that led them to naturally worship God in response. And I think that's a striking pattern for us to see. They read and studied scripture for a quarter of a day, which naturally led them to confess for another quarter of a day, and then that led them to worship. I want us to take stock here and consider for ourselves how we can apply this and have a healthy view of God as a result. So firstly, what can we learn about confession from this passage? Confession is specific. The scene here is quite extraordinary. And in some ways, we might find it hard to picture, hard to relate to. The Hebrews practiced open, specific confession. And we picture the scene. We're told that they stood up one by one and shared openly and publicly their confessed sin. What vulnerability, what humility that both the leaders and the member of the community assembled together to confess their sin. What is striking as we read verses 1 to 5 together is the absence of the names of Nehemiah and Ezra. This is something that God was doing amongst the community. And it was changing the culture of the heart and of the culture of the people. They were in it together. They each had a responsibility to share in the attitude and deed and be responsible for their sin and the sin of the generations before them. We read in verse 16 that they acknowledged the arrogance and stiff-necked nature of those that had gone before, who refused to listen to God and to obey his commands. Their confession was specific and the context was communal. And when was the last time, I wonder this morning, and I'm speaking to myself too, that you shared with a close friend or a trusted individual and confessed your sin with them? Because James 5, 16 tells us, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. Confession is specific and requires humility and vulnerability in sharing with others. And why do we do it? Because confession always precedes forgiveness. 
1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How disciplined, I wonder, are you when it comes to confession and repentance? Is this a regular part of your life with God, your life with others, or your prayer life? This is a challenge for us this morning, isn't it? And if we don't find it challenging, I wonder if that reveals something about the condition of our hearts. What does that say about the way that we approach God? And if you're honest, maybe like me, sometimes we can resonate more with a thought process that repentance is a threat, an afterthought that we throw in in case God is angry with us. Can we find ourselves leaning towards an angry view of God who hates sin, and each time we mess up, I'm hurting God even more? And then thankfully, Jesus came to mediate between us and an angry God. So this morning, instead, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would be speaking and revealing to us unhealthy views that we might have of God and of sin. And rather, we'd view sin as something that robs us of a life-giving relationship with Jesus. It's something that we do to ourselves that isolates us. And because of God's deep love for us, he sent his son Jesus to make a way for us to be with the Father. And why does this matter? Why have I find myself burning with a desire to communicate this as I've been preparing and studying this week? I believe that God is highlighting to us this morning this from his word because it has the most utmost practical significance to our lives. Here's the practical crux of the question that I want us to grasp. What do we do when we find ourselves far from the Father, wanting and waiting to come home? We confess our sins to a God who is faithful, patient, and just. And this should be a practice that we adopt in our lives and model to others. We create a window for others to see for our children, for our young people, for those in our church, for those who are new to a faith, for those who don't have a faith yet, so they know how to access a father and know that the church isn't just a place for the perfect, far from it, and that the church is a place where the door is always open. But how do we get the balance right, I wonder? Some helpful do's and don'ts, I think, for us. We need to be a people who don't dismiss our sin. The Israelites had seen God at work in their midst. They'd been part of the rebuilding project that happened around. God's goodness and faithfulness had been made clear to them so practically that they realized again their deep need for God. And I know that's been true in my life too. The more I get to know God, his character, his faithfulness, his goodness and his love, the more I know I need him. The more I understand, although I will never fully comprehend, his amazing and outrageous grace that he lavishes upon us. But step one for us today is recognizing, not dismissing, recognizing our sin. Because God doesn't dismiss sin. He sent his son Jesus to deal with it. But God isn't asking us to dwell on our sin either. We don't want to become a people who play the victim. I'm so full of sin, I can't do anything. We become immobilized in fear and live a life which beats ourselves up for everything we've ever done wrong. 
Instead, point number two this morning is we need to dwell on God. Truth, confession arises naturally in our life, and that comes from a renewed appreciation of who God is. And that's very much the starting point for the prayer that we then see in Nehemiah chapter 9. So how can we then gain a renewed appreciation of who God is? We need to dwell on who he is, dwell on his character, meditate on the scriptures, and spend time in his presence. In verse 5, we read, Stand up and praise your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. And then we see from that point onwards in the chapter that we've had read to us, the focus of the various points of prayer explain and reveal why God is worthy of all blessing and praise. From verse 6 onwards, we get a brief summary of the Israelites' life. Their highlights reel, if you like. The good, the bad, and the ugly, or rather the goodness and faithfulness of God and the rebellion of the people. Verse 6 to 8 show us to praise God, who is the creator. The first reason we have to praise God is because he is the creator of everything. He is the giver of life. When we dwell on God being the creator of the universe, we gain for ourselves a perspective on our place in his creation, the scale and the magnitude of its beauty and his power. Then the summary of God's goodness and faithfulness is outlined to us as the ways that he intervened, the ways that God was active in the Israelites' story, his promise to Abraham, his miracles and provision through the wilderness. But then we are starting to see the contrast. We are first shown the activeness and the goodness of God in the Israelites' life, and then we see the Israelites' response. Verse 16 to 18 outlines how the people began to rebel. The terminology that's used is that we see their arrogance and how they are a stiff-necked people. But again, we can learn how we can dwell on the goodness of God's nature. I love verses 17 to 18. Let me read them to us again. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Despite everything we read, we see God continually supply and sustain them. And eventually, he brought them through to the promised land. But what we see, I guess we could comment as a cycle of rebellion. Three times we are told that the Israelites were disobedient, so were handed over to the enemies. First we see it in verse 26, then again in verse 28, and then again in verse 29 to 30. In the first two cases, we see the pattern of how God delivered them out of his place of compassion and love for the people. But by the third time, we see how they found themselves, what their current state was, if you like, slaves in their own land. They are still in exile, awaiting the coming of the king, born of David's line, who will eventually and ultimately restore them. But for me this morning, what is significant for us as we dwell on God's nature and character is that we need to review the past, not to get stuck there, but get to, to be, come back to this place where we are reminded of God's promises 
and his faithfulness to his people. And that leads us to the present. There is something in remembering history so we avoid making the same mistakes as before. So we can learn to be a people that serves and loves God more faithfully. And it's giving us an understanding again of us learning and discovering the pattern for our spiritual growth. But this morning, I wonder what astounds you the most as we read these verses together. Is it God's enduring patience? Is it his steadfast love, his compassion? Or is it the rebellion of the people? Sometimes we find ourselves, and maybe it's just me, when I read scripture, I go, how can they get it so wrong? How did they end up there? I'm reading through two kings at the moment, and you see that repeated phrase, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Or the very faithful few times that you see it said or described, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But then I have, I come back to this humble reflection and realize that I'm no different. (laughs) What strikes me from this theological history of the Israelites is the cyclical nature of sin. They confess, but God is faithful and they get led back on track. They mess up, they confess, God is faithful, they are led back on track. And I wonder this morning, church, if we're honest at home or in the building, what cycle of sin might we find ourselves in? Maybe we find our value or identity in our work or activity for God, and we come to realize this, but we can't break the cycle, and weeks later we find ourselves feeling burnt out again. Or maybe when we're tired or anxious, and let's be honest, we're tired and anxious at the moment. We find ourselves seeking sin, sinful outlets to self-soothe, and then this is a cycle that we can't break. I don't know what it might be for you this morning. It might be a number of things, but I believe the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind patterns, of, well, helping us recognize patterns of behavior in our lives that need breaking. How, might we ask? Finally, I want us to marry together these two thoughts. We've looked at our need to confess to God in the same pattern of the Israelites in Nehemiah 9, which reveals God's heart and desire for us to dwell on who he is, to not get stuck in a place of reflecting on our sin. But I want us to fuse these points together before I close. Point number three, the context of confession is to a faithful God. Yes, we need a healthy view of what confession is, and we need to become, see this become a reality in our walk with God. But sometimes I wonder if we miss the value of who we are confessing to. Confession is not a time where we get something off our chest and feel so much better about it when we speak to a friend. Sometimes we really forget who we are confessing to, a faithful, forgiving God who longs to see us grow, who has the power to change our hearts, who has the power to transform our minds and bring breakthrough in our cycles of sin and our lives. A God who wants to see us do something about our lives, who doesn't dismiss our sin, but did something about it by sending his son Jesus so we could boldly approach the throne of God, confess our sins to a God who is faithful, receive his forgiveness to then worship him again with our lives. 
It's all about him. The context and the person that we are confessing to is a God who is abundant and faithful. The God who sent his son Jesus so that we could live life with him in fullness and abundance. That is what real repentance is. We need to realize who we are without God, realize his continual goodness and faithfulness to us, and then realize, here's the thing, and it kind of struck me in the week, that God never tires in restoring us. He never tires. He never gives up on us. But that doesn't give us an excuse to wander off, to live lives regardless of what God says, led by our feelings or um, just looking at like what culture states, because that's cheap grace. Instead, it gives us the freedom to come home when we've wandered off. That's what real repentance is today. And I believe as we've opened up Nehemiah chapter nine together, that's what we see. A people who are led back to the heart of who God is, led back to a place of confession and repentance, acknowledging that they are to live a life of worship as a result. So this morning, I wonder, what do I want you to hear as we've looked at Nehemiah chapter nine together? That confession is a biblical principle that propels us forward in our walk with God. That God is astonishingly faithful and that God longs for us not to dwell in our sin, but to dwell on who he is. The context of our confession is to a faithful God who hears us and who will remain faithful to us. The Bible always parallels us, a picture of our faithlessness with God's faithfulness. So what does that leave us to do this morning as a result of the way we might have been challenged? We need to be a people, we need to be a church who confesses our sins before God, who comes back to a place of repentance again this morning, whether you're at home or whether you're here in the building with us. I would love us to find a new posture as we respond in worship. Maybe that's kneeling if that's helpful. Maybe that's sharing with someone. Maybe that's being vulnerable, being accountable. Telling someone this morning, if you find yourself in a pattern of sin, that your heart is longing to break. But we can't do it by ourselves. We need an encounter with a faithful and living God. But I don't want us to just stop there this morning, just to come and respond in words and song. But let's genuinely let our confession lead us into a place of praise and worship. Hang out with God again this morning. Realize afresh how much you need him and pour out your adoration to him. I'm going to pray, but I'm going to invite the band to come back up and to help lead us in our response as we find a place and a posture to respond in a way that says, Lord God, we confess that we are in great need of you again this morning. But let's pray. Father God, this morning we return to you. Lord, we thank you that when we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just. Lord, we declare who you are again. We thank you that you are the creator God. You give life to everything and you deserve our hearts full of praise. Receive our adoration this morning, we pray. But Father, would your spirit fill our lives again? Would you give us a spirit of humility, a spirit of vulnerability and boldness to confess our sins with others? 
But Father, not just with others, in your presence. Would you break strongholds this morning, cycles of sin, we pray. Would you recognize this morning that you accompany us on the journey? Lord, that you never give up on us. You never tire of restoring us. Father, thank you that we are not the finished article yet, but you have promised to complete in us the good work that you have started. Father, thank you for your constantness. We hold on to you again this morning. We declare that you are good. Move among us, both here and at home, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.